Bible, and uh, we will be looking at a number of verses this morning, and I trust it will be very helpful for us to consider them, especially in light of these recent events, and you might be blessed to have a copy of God's Word open this morning as we look at uh, this wonderful passage from this wonderful little book. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, hear now the Word of God. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus and his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for the fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word in which we can consider this morning. We believe it to be the inerrant, infallible, very word of God. We think you have given this to us for such a time as this that we might hear from our God, that you might speak to us and comfort us and encourage us and exhort us and establish us, that you might even make our faith grow stronger and our love grow deeper as we think about the truths before us. And so we ask, as we have all morning long, haven't we, Father, that you would come and help us in a very special and powerful way. We believe that even within us very now, this, this very moment, resides the Holy Spirit, He is within us to equip us, to strengthen us, and to help us to understand and apply these words before us. So come, we pray, in great power, conviction, and comfort, for we ask it in Christ's name, amen. Well, when I think about Mark Cochran... I can't help but think about uh, his deep love for you and for me, uh, for his church. And even as we gather this morning during our Sunday school hour in prayer, for prayer, and, and afterwards John uh, came up to me and, and um, just testified to me, as, as many of you have already, and many of you have already to one another. Um, that Mark Cochran, he might have been one of the best of us. He was a genuine man who 
deeply loved Christ and deeply loved his brothers and sisters and, and sought to invest his life in them. And many of you know, of course, Mark as a Sunday school teacher and, and all of us who um, call this church our family know Mark as, as our worship leader, don't we? And of course, we all know a Mark, I think most dear in my heart, as an elder of this church. You know, an elder, according to the Bible, is just a pastor. It's the same office, just different words to describe the different functions of that office. And Mark served as a, a pastor, a lay pastor of this church, as a, as a shepherd of this church. And he did so with great delight, with great passion. If you know Mark, uh, Mark was very, very quick to laugh, wasn't he? And um, I could almost hear his laugh right now. And he was equally quick to cry. And sometimes he would do both at the same time, right? Uh, he would laugh so hard he would cry. And uh, I certainly will miss, miss that. I'll miss the times that we've had together. I think uh, Mark was the real, the, the genuine article, I might say, that he was constantly applying his tru- the, the truth of God's word. This 59-year-old man constantly wanting to grow, constantly wanting to become a better pastor, a better elder, constantly wanting to serve this church more faithfully. And that uh, just wasn't for Mark. It, it's in Don's life as well. I, I think I mentioned already this morning that uh, when, when Don and I and, and the family were praying at 4 a.m. this morning as we were just dealing with the shock of Mark's death, I listened intently to, I wasn't even expecting Don to pray. Of course, that's the pastor's job, isn't he? And so he's there to pray, and I'm happy to do so. But when I finished praying, um, uh, Dawn couldn't help herself but to speak to her father and her God. And you know what she prayed for? She prayed for you. She prayed for me. She prayed for this church. And in fact, I, I just received a text from Dawn, if you don't mind me sharing it, um, that uh, she, she mentions, uh, let me see here, good morning, Stephen. She says, please know that I am earnestly praying for you and for our Hamilton Baptist Church family this morning. I know it will be a difficult service. May the Lord empower you greatly and spread his peace and comfort to all. With steadfast love to all and with a thankful heart. And uh, that's the kind of people that Mark and Don Cochran are. Um, a, great deal love, a great love for the church. I mention that because um, I think that's an incredibly rare quality um, to find in churches these days. And you might now think it is if you've been in Hamilton Baptist Church for a while, because I, I do think this to be an incredibly loving church. And if you're a member here, you probably have experienced that time and time again. But I do think it is rare to find this, especially among the leadership in a church. It seems to me that Western Christians increasingly see church as a place where they receive spiritual services. It's a place where you go and and you might hear a, a powerful speaker or, or tend, a, you know, if you will, a, a, a moving concert. Or your children might receive exemplary ministry from well-trained, you know, quasi-professionals and all the rest. And I think people begin more and more to see church in this way. It's why I'm often dismayed when even... Uh, long-time members, and, and this doesn't happen simply in our church, but many churches, will just leave the church. 
and will leave the church without, and of course there's reasons to leave the church, don't misunderstand me, but sometimes people will leave without even letting anybody know. Um, and we just, you know, six months later, three months later, you realize they're gone, as if they're going on to support another organization. And that's just not something that happens here. A, a poll recently in the year 2000, uh, I guess it wasn't all that recent, is it? And the poll in the year 2000 said that 22% of, of churchgoers look, for, look to the church for meaningful community. Did you catch that? About one out of five Christians who attend church in America actually look to their church for meaningful community. So what, else, what are they looking for, if not community? I think they're looking for the spiritual services that the church might provide. And when are part of, part of the trend that is perpetuating this tendency is that increasingly today we have very, very large churches. We have fewer churches, but the churches we have are larger. And the churches uh, sometimes get so large they can't house all the people, and so they... They plant what we now call satellite campuses, and uh, it'll be in the next town over or, or sometimes in the next state, um, sometimes across the country. And, and uh, although these churches, we, we love them, rejoice that they affirm the gospel and uh, love King Jesus, and they are our brothers and sisters in Christ, part of me wonders if people are drawn to these type of churches, not, simply, not because of the community of God's people and the love of God's people, but they're drawn because of perhaps the talented preacher that is put on the screen every Sunday. And I think what we see here in this passage before us is a different vision of church, a a different philosophy as to what church might be. It seems to me what Paul is writing about here is that church is to be a, a covenant community where people can be known and know others, where people can love and be loved. And to be honest, uh, when I got home this morning around 4 a.m., I wasn't sure what to preach. I wasn't sure if you should do. I just scrap this message and, and, and start over and teach something entirely different. And then I began to re- really kind of rethink what I had prepared to, to speak to you about. And what we have here really is, is a passage from a pastor, an elder, to a church that he desperately loves. And, and I think, well, what... A, better way, what better way there, there might be to, to honor our brother um, Mark, even as we uh, seek God's word, as he has kind of laid out this schedule for us. And we see this man who's in desperate love for this people, this church. And what we see here is that God created this, this community of people that they might love each other. In fact, you read this passage and it seems to me that almost every word here is about love. It's about Jesus' love or Paul's love or their love. And, and so, uh, to be perfectly honest, um, there, there will come a time to uh, rightfully um, preach a funeral sermon. And um, I trust God will bless that. And uh, to be honest, I look forward to the opportunity to herald in Christ in that way. But this morning, uh, we're going to just stick with the passage that God had uh, prepared for us. And I trust he'll honor that. I'm equally compelled to do so because uh, the elders actually considered this passage this Thursday night. And Mark was there, of course. And we talked about what kind of church we want to be in light of these truths. And we talked about what kind of, what kind of pastors, what kind of elders we want to be in light of these, these truths. And I, I still remember I was sharing with Don this morning about the insight that Mark had on this passage. And, and the meaning and full impact that it was having in his life and my life as someone who wants to love our church well. And so I hope and trust uh, it is a fitting passage to preach this morning. I trust you'll forgive me if it's not.
Um, and I, I do want to honor my brother, but more importantly, I want to honor our Lord Jesus as we consider this love letter from an elder to his church, Paul to the Thessalonians. And here we find uh, four realities of brotherly love. Four realities of brotherly love that I commend to you that you might seek to exemplify in your life through the gospel. You see, first of all, that Paul's love for his church, this church that he planted, the church in Thessalonica, was a strong love. It's a strong love. You know verse 17. But since we are torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavor the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus and his coming? Is it not you, he says? For you are our glory. You are our joy. And I hope, my brothers, that you can uh, hear the passion in Paul's writing here, the intensity of his writing. This perhaps, really in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and 3, is the most kind of autobiographical, at least the longest autobiography that uh, that Paul will give us. And and really in chapter 2 verses 1 through 16, Paul is defending his ministry among the Thessalonians against the slander that he was there either for their money or for their women. And so if you remember back when we considered that passage, Paul says, no, I ministered in this way, and I ministered in that way, and, 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 I, and I loved you when I was with you. And now we get to verse 17, and he's no longer defending his, his ministry. He's now defending his absence. Why is he not with them? Why did he leave? Why has he not returned? And in this defense before us, we see this this overflowing expression of intense and strong love. I think it really confronts the modern notions of love. Sometimes we think of love as being nice. And we might think, okay, that's a loving church because they're, they, they, don't, they, don't, they don't speak poorly about other people. But that's not what Paul seems to understand love to be. There's a forcefulness to it, isn't there? And you notice the language he speaks about. He says, you know, we were, we were torn away from you, he says, and we have great eagerness to, to be with you. And there's this intense longing. And he says, yeah, when I think about you, I think that you're my joy and you're my hope and you're my crown. And he says, listen, I need you to, I need to see you face to face. I long to see you. And we find this really throughout this letter. We read on and he talks about his affectionate desire for them. And he says, you know, when I heard about you, I could finally live again. And I can't thank God for you enough. And and it it seems that Paul's gushing a little bit. I mean, if we're honest, it it might even make us a little uncomfortable. We say, man, get a hold of yourself. This is a little too much, isn't it? But I'm afraid this is what the gospel does. This is what the love of God does in our heart. When we receive the love of Christ in us, which of course is a strong, passionate, and intense love, it, it ignites a love and a longing for others whom he loves, namely the church. You know, somehow we think of Paul as this heartless theologian, right? You, you ever think that? That Paul could probably care less about how, how other people feel. But you listen to him, and it seems like he couldn't care more. And I, I think this is one of the great values of the book of 1 Thessalonians. It reveals his soul to us, perhaps unlike any of his other writings. In Romans, you might see the greatness of Paul's mind as he writes to a people he's never met. But in 1 Thessalonians, you discover the depth of his heart of a people he desperately loves. In fact, he, he loves them so much, you notice 
his hasty departure in the middle of the night felt like he was torn away from them, as he writes in verse 17. But since we are torn away from you, brothers, in other words, I didn't want to leave you. I was forced to leave you. That literal rendering, the literal translation of being torn away is we were orphaned. We were orphaned. Paul says it was like children being taken from their parents. And if you remember, he's already used the metaphors, the family metaphors in this letter. He, he says, I, I loved you with the tender affection of a nursing mother. He said, I, I, I encourage you with the, the loving exhortation of a devoted father. And now, he, in verse 17, he says, being taken away from you was like a parent losing a child. And some of you might, might know what this was like. Some of you perhaps have taken, taken your little ones off to college. I have not yet experienced this, of course, um, uh, at least as a parent, but I, but I did as a, as a student going to school 700 miles away from home. And uh, those, those last minutes, if you remember them, are kind of awkward, aren't they? And they're, they're filled with um, uncomfortable small talk and tearing eyes and long embraces. And, and they are so because, partly because the parents hope um, that, and, and pray that the, the, the enemy and the temptation that their, their, young, their young ones soon going to be surrounded with might not snatch away their faith. And it, it's not a happy occasion, all right? for the parents at least. right? Um, it's a tearful one. Well, Paul says, listen, I didn't want to leave. In fact, he says, I'm afraid of the harm that might come upon you. I'm afraid I can't protect you. And so we were separated, but we were never out of mind, he says. He says, oh, we might have been separated in person, but not in heart, he writes. I thought of you every day. It's almost as if they were like his family. His family. Is that not what Jesus promised, by the way? In Mark chapter 10, for Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. My friends, that was Paul's experience. I may have lost some family in following Jesus, but I received so much more. I wonder, is that your experience? Have you been added to a family? Do you look around and see brothers and sisters, mother and children, a faith family that becomes really as real to us as as anything? I I think this is why this was such a painful day. Because Mark simply wasn't a friend. Mark was a brother. He was a brother of ours. That's why a couple months ago it was painful uh, when Dick Trapp went home to be the Lord. I don't, were you at that service when Dave came up and eulogized Dick? Right? One elder eulogizing another. One Christian eulogizing another. But I'll tell you, that wasn't a friend eulogizing a friend. That was a brother eulogizing a brother. In, in every sense of the way. And is that not what, what, what he says here? Is that not what he calls them? You see that in verse 17? He says, but since we are torn away from you, what is he? Brothers, he says. My brothers. In fact, by the way, he will use that term brothers 15 other times in this little book. Chapter 1, verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 1 and verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 2, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 1, verse 9, verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 1, verse 4, verse 12, verse 14, verse 25, verse 26, and verse 27. Perhaps that might have been an important word to the Apostle Paul. My brothers, he says. 
You see, when God saves us, he just doesn't wash us clean of our sin. He just doesn't cover us with the blood of Christ and forgive us of all our transgressions. He brings us into his family. He says, I am not simply your God and Lord, but I now am your father. You are my son and you are my daughter. And I'll tell you, if God is my father and God is your father, well, what does that make us? We are brothers. We are sisters. This is the family of God that he has given us, and there ought to be love within that family, don't you think? We're family. Not because we all like a certain style of praise music. That's not what unites us. Right? We're family, not because we all vote for the same candidates. That's not what unites us. We're family because we're all saved by the same Father through the same blood-bought grace. We're family because we're all adopted children. We're all redeemed slaves. We're all ransomed hostages. We're all forgiven sinners. And therefore, it matters not your giftedness. It matters not your education. It matters not your wealth, your prominence. It matters not the color of skin or your political preferences. We all come through the same narrow gate by the same shed blood through the forgiveness of a loving God. And he makes a family family, a brotherhood, a sisterhood. And I'll tell you, it is this brotherhood that is exemplified in this book and that was seen in the first century that revolutionized the world. There had heretofore been nothing like the church. Nothing. In all of the world, search it all, all the way over, there had been nothing where people were united regardless of race, that people were united regardless of whether you were free or slave, whether you're wealthy or poor, whether you were, were thought about this or that, and yet they were all united on an equal foundation, united together as family, and the world had seen nothing like it. Is this not what Jesus says? By this all men will know you are my disciples. The perfection of your truth. The excellence of your preaching, the power of your musical experiences? No. By your love for one another. My brothers and sisters in Christ, that's what the church is. I tell you this often, I'll tell you it again, I'm sure I'll tell you it till I'm blue in the face. The church is a family. It is a faith family. Have you discovered that to be true? You will only if you get involved and if you stick around. Let me gently encourage you to do both. And you will discover perhaps far more what the church is. You see, Paul, Paul found it there. In fact, he wanted to return, didn't he? As you see in verse 17, he says, We endeavor the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. I wanted to come back, but he was hindered, wasn't he? For he says in verse 18, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. In other words, my absence is not due to my indifference, but it is due to my enemy, the devil. He prevents my, my return to you. Now, Paul does not elaborate, and we probably shouldn't speculate exactly what he means by the devil's hindrance of, of his return. But, but what we do know is that Paul would write later in the book of Ephesians that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. You see, Satan is continually seeking to undermine the church. And it was his activity, evidently, not Paul's lack of love, that is keeping them apart. 
And so if he cannot be reunited in this life, well, what? He will see them again, won't he? When the Lord returns. And when he does, they shall be his glory. It's somewhat astonishing what he says, I think. Particular for this pastor who stands before you. For he writes in verse 19, What is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. See, Paul says, when Christ returns, I'll see you again. I'll be with you. In fact, I was praying that Christ would return around 4 a.m. this morning, to be perfectly honest. Because that, that's the day in which we're all united. Paul will be very clear about this when we get to chapter 4. The return of Jesus is the reunion of the saints. He says, when Christ returns, what? Well, I will point to you. I will point to you, Thessalonians, as the fruit of my life. You will be my crown of boasting, he says. Not the crown of authority that sits on the head of a monarch, but the laurel wreath that adorns the brow of a champion. The Thessalonians, not wealth, prestige, prominence, and all the rest. The Thessalonians and those like them are the prize for which Paul runs. They are the reward for which he labors. And in that way, I am very much reminded of my dear brother Mark. The labor that he gave for this church. The effort that he gave. The prayers that he offered. I think he would say of you, as Paul said of the Thessalonians, that you indeed are his joy, his crown of boasting before the Lord. I just love this verse. I love this passage. Just passionate love here, Paul. is just pouring it all out. I've been orphaned. I'm eager to see you. I have great desire. You're my hope, joy, crown, and glory. He says, you ever write that to someone? You, you, you ever... You ever uh, uh, say to someone or write someone a letter and say, you know, I have this just great abounding desire to see you face to face. And not because you think they're cute, right? But because you, you're, you're in Christ together. Because you love them in Jesus. I mean, this is what he's talking about. He said, you ever say to another Christian, I want you to know you're my joy. That's pretty strong, isn't it? I want you to know you're my glory. And yeah, that's what he says. And he doesn't even seem to care. In fact, I think if these become the relationships within the church in this land, I think the world will begin to take notice. I think if we actually begin to live out more fully and faithfully a love that can only be explained and enabled and empowered by the gospel, a love that's not simply seen on Sunday mornings, a love that is quick to overlook wrongs, a love that is quick to forgive, I think the world will take notice. My brothers and sisters, often we are too quickly offended or annoyed. She slighted me. He, he ignored me. His kids are too restless. Right? They dress the wrong way, whatever it is. And when Christian defects are large in our mind, we have lost sight, I believe, of what God has done for us. And I think we ought to continue to gaze upon Jesus, know the deep love of God, that we might be free to share it in one another's life with great passion, and even sacrifice. For you see, secondly, it was a sacrificial love. A sacrificial love. What does he say there in chapter 3 and verse 1? 
Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ. I think that's a powerful phrase found there in verse 1. We could bear it no longer, he says. He repeats himself in verse 5, writing, for this reason we could bear it no longer. Paul is evidently frustrated that he is unable to, re, uh, to return to them. And now his trouble is compounded that he has received no news from them at all. Perhaps now up to a year. I mean, it's one thing to drop your kid off at college. It's an entirely different thing never to hear from them again. Right? You need to get word every once in a while. And so what does he say? I did. I sent Timothy to you. And I think in sending Timothy, we see that Paul's, his love is propelling him to sacrifice for him. He says, I sent Timothy to you that did what to him? Left him alone, according to verse 1, in Athens. Now, if you remember from, from our little preview in Acts 17, Paul fled Thessalonica on over to Berea. And there, the same people that persecuted him in Thessalonica followed him a week later down in the Berea. And so he had a run out of Berea. And then uh, where did he go? Well, off into Athens. But before he leaves Berea, you can see all this in Acts 17, he says, i got to get out of here, but Timothy, I want you to stay here in Berea. And Timothy, I can't finish what I'm supposed to do, so I need you to finish my work. And then when you're done, you catch up with me in Athens. Okay? And so, so Timothy's left in Berea. Paul runs to Athens, and Timothy finally finishes up in Berea and catches up with Paul in Athens, and then what does Paul do immediately? He sends Timothy back to Thessalonica. Now, I say this is a sacrifice because if you know, if you, you read Acts 17 and Acts 18, Athens was not a happy place for Paul. It was a very difficult place to minister for him. It was a university town full of gods and critics and skeptics and scoffers and all the rest. And I think it's there which Paul needs his team. It's there which Paul needs support. It's there which Paul needs encouragement. We know, as he would write, that he felt oppressed by the city's overwhelming idolatry. And yet the apostle was willing to face this enemy alone if it could mean he could support the Thessalonian brothers and sisters. Right? Leaving Paul isolated from the Christian fellowship that we so cherish. There to minister by himself in the pagan city. Say, so why would he do this? Well, because he loved them. And therefore, he was willing to sacrifice for them. He didn't have to send Timothy. He could have kept Timothy with him. He didn't have to choose what was best for them. He could have chosen what was best for him. But he realized this church needed support. And so he sacrificed. May I ask you, Christian... In what way does your love compel you to sacrifice, not simply for your family, but for your brothers and sisters in Christ sitting to your left and to your right? In what way are you compelled to give, to have less so others might have more? That might mean giving up an evening. That might mean, you know, losing some free time to serve. That might mean taking, for instance, a turn in the nursery. As we, I think we just heard just a moment ago, uh, shouting. They may be calling for some of you even now. Right? Right? You take a turn in the nursery. Why would you do that? So someone else might have a turn in this room. So you might love them. It might mean that you give to missions. It might mean that you go. It might mean that you join a community group, even though you're not quite sure you want to give up that evening. You do so not simply for yourself. You do so for others. 
If you're here in this church and all you think of your participation in this church is what you can get out of it, you are missing what the church is all about. The church is not simply a place for you to receive. It's a place for you to give, a place for you even to sacrifice like a family. Right? It's not a restaurant where we wait on you. It's a, it's a family and we all get up and clean the dishes and we all work together. If you're, let me just speak to the members of Hamilton Baptist Church. If you've covenanted with us, you ought to be involved in some way, shouldn't you? You ought to be serving in some way. You ought to be sacrificing in some way. You ought to be loving through that sacrifice. You say, but I don't want to serve the nursery. Or I don't want to do this or that. And I think that's the entire point, isn't it? I didn't want to send Timothy, but I did because I loved them. And I think they must have felt loved when they read this. I think Timothy probably did as well. You notice how he describes him in verse 2 there, doesn't he? In glowing terms, we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. I mean, that's quite a, quite a uh, description of good old timid Tim, right? I mean, remember, this is the guy whose belly is in such turmoil at the thought of leading and preaching. He gets all churned up and messed up that Paul says, you know, you need to take a sip of wine for your tummy before you preach and all the rest. Settle you down, poor Tim. This is the one that he's, of whom he wrote in 1 Corinthians 16, Hey, when Timothy arrives in Corinth, put him at ease. Don't be too rough with my friend Tim. Right? And so Tim, Timothy could, didn't, didn't have the, the gangbuster start in ministry. And yet he must have been looking over Paul's shoulder, I think, as he reads that Paul says, not Timothy, my son. No, he writes that elsewhere, doesn't he? He says, Timothy, my brother. Timothy, God's co-worker in the gospel. I just think that's extraordinary. I just think that's a great and loving encouragement uh, to Timothy. You know, uh, playing, playing a Timothy to a Paul, that's not an easy role to play. Right? Uh, I, I've played that role before. I, I, remember, I was an associate pastor for 10 years. I remember visiting a hospital as an associate pastor. and the, I didn't know the person well uh, that I was visiting. In fact, I didn't know him well at all. And, and, and this person looked at me and asked me two questions. Number one, who are you? And number two, where's the pastor? <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? I think it is. I think most people in ministry want to lead. Most people that aspire for, for the office of elder, which the Bible says is to aspire for a good thing, want, want, want to be out in front just because God has led us that way. And it's hard to someone else get the credit while you do the work off stage. And Paul says, listen, I want you to understand, hey, Timothy's the real thing. He's the real deal. He's God's co-worker in the gospel. What more do you want? Right? And God has his Timothys, and God has his Pauls, and they all have a role to play. And we ought to rejoice in God's provision to us in the church and be thankful for the people whom God sends us. For he sends them to us to strengthen us. As you see, thirdly, that he has a strengthening love. A strengthening love. There are three reasons Paul gives for sending Timothy. Three reasons. You note the first in verse 5. I'm going to skip a couple of verses. Rest assured, we'll return to them in a moment. But verse 5, he says, I sent Timothy to investigate. To investigate. He writes there, doesn't he? For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Right? He, he sent him to learn about their faith because he fears once again, the devil, this is the second time he's referenced him in this passage, might snatch away their faith. 
You, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Uh, Lego and I have this experience every year. We, the spring comes, we have great ambitions, and we labor very hard in our garden to get it ready to go. And then two weeks later, we turn around and the weeds are up to our chin. And uh, if, if you're anything like us, we just give up at that point. Okay? And we do it every year. I mean, every year, it's the same old thing. And, we, and we, what we think about as we look at the, the garden now growing beautiful weeds, uh, we think all that initial labor was fruitless. Right? Or we might use the language of Paul that our labor was in vain, as he says there in verse 5. And Paul's fear, it seems to be, that he has not tended this garden for some time. And he knows there's a tempter out there, and he knows this tempter seeks to destroy our faith. And sometimes, by the way, the tempter does this from attacking from the outside, which we'll see he's doing in Thessalonica in just a moment. But often the tempter, doesn't he not? He comes, attacks from the inside. I think this, that's his preference, to be perfectly honest. He, he, he doesn't simply want to remove the church. He wants to make the church ineffective. And I think it is therefore not surprising, though it is terribly sad, when petty disagreements within the church somehow grow into these insurmountable monsters. That seem to rip the church apart and destroy it of any effectiveness towards godliness and, church, and kingdom growth. And to be honest, he doesn't start with evil people. He starts with people who are, are committed to Christ and are perhaps very zealous for their position. And, and perhaps they even believe they're defending the church and, and arguing for the health of the church. And yet they so, so labor for their pet, pet position that it ends, actually ends up ripping the church apart. It ends up destroying the church. And therefore, Paul, in, in great, des- is des- great desperation about their faith, right? He says, I, I'm afraid that the tempter might come. I'm afraid that he might snatch away the seed that I sowed. There's a great urgency there for, to protect their faith. We, we should be urgent, my brothers and sisters, about protecting our faith. I don't know if you've been on social media recently. I, I usually don't recommend it. In fact, I don't even now. Um, but there are a number, it seems to be left and the right, prominent Christians walking away from Jesus and in some way celebrating that decision as they blast it all over social media and say, I no longer believe in Jesus, and you shouldn't either. These These are authors, these are preachers, these are songwriters, these are people that have ministered, to be honest, very powerfully in my life through their writings, and now they say, no, no, I don't believe anymore. There's a tempter. There's a tempter. And he wants to snatch our faith away we, therefore, should not be presumptuous that our, that, that about our faith. We need to protect our faith. We need to fill our minds with the Word of God, not with the world. Parents, may I lovingly encourage you to avoid the trap that is so prominent today of providing your children with world-class education and amazing opportunity after opportunity and doing little for their faith doing little to disciple them, to, to teach them, to help them learn to pray and read the Word. We ought to labor for their faith. We ought to labor for the faith of those in the church. I think we strike 
a blow to Satan every time a, a Sunday school teacher opens up the Bible in her class or his class and says, let me tell you what God has said. I think we strike a blow to the tempter every time we gather in prayer and, and lift one another up as we will sometime in December. I think we strike a blow to the devil every time a father gathers his children at the table and after dinner he says, before we run off to do this and that, may I open up the Bible and read of Scripture for us. May I talk to you about our God tonight that we might know Him, love Him, and follow Him more faithfully. See, Paul sends Timothy to investigate their faith, number one. He sends them, secondly, to encourage their faith. For we read in verse 2, do we not, that He has come to establish and exhort you in your faith. That word exhort might be a familiar one with you. Not to, I don't often like to give you the Greek, but it is. I will do so in this case. It is the word parakaleo. That word exhort, parakaleo. I mention that only because you might be familiar with that word. Sometimes uh, it is translated the paraclete in reference to the Holy Spirit. Or the King James Version would translate the comforter. And so even the King James, if you're following along, in that translation says there in verse 2, he came to comfort you in your faith. Comfort you. But I think probably uh, exhort has more of the meaning. Because the comfort that Timothy is coming. He's not coming to give them a massage, right? And, and, and ease their burdens and tell them pleasant things. He's coming to prepare them for service. Right? Timothy didn't come, you know, with, 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 his, with a guitar and sing them nice songs. He came to mobilize them for ministry. And I think far too many Christians are, are, are attached to the church hoping to be soothed. Hoping to be comforted. When we, far, we might, might far more likely need to be prodded, equipped, even exhorted. And so Timothy comes to encourage and exhort, investigate. And number third, you see he comes to stabilize, to stabilize. This great strengthening love from this uh, ambassador from the apostle, we read in verse 3, that no one... That no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourself know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. I don't want you to be moved by these afflictions. I think what a good word for us in light of recent events in our church life. He's already seen, we've already seen, of course, in our study of 1 Thessalonians that the Christians there are suffering. And the temptation in the midst of suffering is just to walk away right from Christ. And you, all you have to do, you want to end the suffering, embrace the culture, deny your faith, and immediately you see the suffer end, and the culture applauds, and we're so glad you're part of us, and we won't trouble you anymore. And, and they face that temptation, and we face that temptation today, and many Christians are surrendering to it, as I've already mentioned, that, yeah, listen, just compromise your beliefs. And, and you get applauded by the majority culture, right? You end your troubles. And Paul has already warned them of this temptation, evidently. Is that what he says in verse 4? He says, we kept telling you beforehand. We kept, this seems to be like the regular part of Paul's initial teaching. We kept telling you beforehand that you're going to suffer affliction. And he, why is he telling beforehand? He wants to prepare them. It, it was like the, the captain on the airplane when I... Flew home from uh, Montana this uh, Wednesday, wasn't it? 
I took my, my 13-year-old son out to, do, out to the big mountains, and, and we were out there backpacking in Wyoming, far above the, the timber line up there at 12,000 feet where the air is thin and, and, the, and the grizzly bear roam, and all. just a great and exciting time to be able to talk to him about his faith. I left him out there with his great uncle and his great aunt and got on a plane on Wednesday, and, and the pilot came over the, the intercom. You've had this experience, haven't you? And he says, hey, this is your pilot speaking. I've uh, advised the flight attendants to suspend the in-flight service because I've surveyed the weather ahead, and uh, we're in for some rough air. So I've asked them to take a seat, and we'll resume as soon as we get through it. And sure enough, we hit the rough air, and we went bouncy-bouncy, right? And, but, I, you know, to be perfectly honest, I sure was thankful that the pilot told me beforehand. I don't like it when you don't hear anything from the captain and all of a sudden the bouncy bouncy comes and the flight attendant's face turns white and they start grabbing things and and falling over and uh, that's not fun at all, right? And so, but Paul says, listen, I'm already telling you this. I told you this. It's coming. He's not alone, by the way. Did not Jesus say, John 16, I believe it was, in this world you have trouble, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. And so Timothy comes to remind them of the Father's plan, even in the midst of their affliction. You notice these somewhat startling words there at the end of verse 3. He says, we were destined for this. Destined for this. I'm reminded of, I'm, I'm helped by those words, I should say. Um, even in light of the shocking and sudden tragedy in, in Mark and Don's life last night. Don was telling me, um, and I've shared this with some of you, that uh, yesterday morning, God brought a song to her head, a song she hadn't heard in years, and the song is, God is in control. And throughout the day, she was singing, God is in control. God is in control. Unknowing that her husband would lose his life that evening. And she testified to me as I showed up in the wee hours of the morning. She said, Pastor, God is in control. And isn't this what Paul says? Hey, you're suffering. But I understand God is in control. He said, well, why, why, why do we suffer? Why do these things happen? And, and, you know, I could give you really two answers. I mean, one is I don't know, and, and the other is I, I got about 100 reasons why they happen. And we could probably spend all day thinking about it. But I would say to you, perhaps maybe just offer you one, sometimes we, we learn lessons only through difficulty and challenge. That there are unique lessons learned through affliction. And if we had a chance to survey everybody here, I'm sure the vast majority would agree with that statement and say, yeah, you know what I learned? And I learned mostly through affliction. Right? I mean, and we know this to be true. You ever need advice, ever trouble coming upon your life, and you look at so-and-so and say, hey, they've never had a difficult day in their life. I'll go ask them. Right? Of course not. No, character and wisdom and seem to be discovered in the midst of great hardship and tragedy and affliction. And therefore, what happens, even as we read in 2 Corinthians, that it gives us an opportunity to share this in other people's lives. That God, through, through the crucible, through the fire, strengthens us and shapes us and molds us and redirects us, even as we, we, we enter into this furnace. He says, we're destined for this. And I think there, I hope, I hope for all who suffer today and all who will suffer tomorrow, there's comfort in those words. You're destined for this, for this tells us that the Father sits at the mouth of the furnace. He determines its length. He moderates its heat. It's all under his loving control. And so Timothy arrives and he wants to investigate their faith. 
encourage their love, stabilize their hope in the midst of trouble. And once his ministry is complete, he returns to Paul, who has now moved on to Corinth. And there he finally meets up with Corinth with news of their progress, which leads us, lastly, to a shared love. A shared love. You see it in verse 6, don't we? But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported, to, reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. I don't know if you can see the picture there. That It's so clear in my mind. In rushes Timothy with news fresh from Thessalonica. And Paul now is so overjoyed, he seems to stop what he's doing and begins to write this letter. For he says in verse 6, but now that Timothy's come, he's just, he's come and I just want to write this distressed apostle now seems to be overcome with delight that the Thessalonians' faith is, is firm, that they're even growing. In fact, you notice what encourages them. It seems to be two things. One, he says about the good news of your faith and love. There in verse 6, you see that? He's brought us the good news of your faith and love. Faith and love. Paul is always returning to these, is he not? He would write later to Timothy, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a, uh, from a sincere faith. He would write to Philemon that he rejoiced because I hear of your love and your faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. He writes to the, letter, to the, to the Galatian churches uh, that of utmost importance is, quote, faith working through love. Right? Faith and love. One pastor puts it this way. Just as faith is the characteristic attitude of the Christian towards God, so love is the characteristic attitude towards man. Faith and love. And so I ask you once again, parents, what do you seek to nurture in your children? I ask you, Christians, what is the goal of your Christian relationships, of your discipleship with those who are perhaps not as far along with you or maybe being discipled by those who are much farther? What is the ambition of your community group? What is the hope for your church? Is it not this? That our faith in God would grow deep and our love for one another would abound. That our life would not be defined by success or applause or the number of followers on whatever internet site you choose to frequent, but our life would be defined by the faith we have in God and the love that we have for one another. This is what Paul is rejoicing in about the Thessalonians, that they had faith and love, but he rejoices for a second reason, doesn't he? For he says at the end of verse 6 that Timothy has reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us just as we long to see you. You remember that Paul is being slandered by his enemies, and he realizes, finally discovers they haven't believed the slander, that they love Paul, that they long to see Paul just as long Paul longs to see them that there's this desire for a reunion, and it's a mutual desire, which seems to be very important to Paul, that they have this shared love. There is a reciprocal nature to Christian love. So Paul says, Timothy, I, I, I send Timothy because I love them, and Timothy returns and testifies, Paul, well, they love you as well. And I just think this is a picture of the church community, a, a, a place of shared love, a reciprocal love, not a take it or leave it, a longing for us to be together. That's why I'm excited, uh, by the way, that we, once again, in fact, next week, I believe it is, that we're going to have four uh, new people come stand before you and, and uh, join this church by making, making covenantal vows to us. 
right? And they're going to become members of this church, making an investment in this church, making a commitment in this church. And I'm excited that in just in a couple of weeks, we're going to begin our new membership process, I think beginning on September 8th during our Sunday school hour, that we might see to, to tell others about what it means to be a member of Hamilton Baptist Church, that what it means to, to not just come and receive, but come and love and be loved and to share life together. And I'm excited about this because I see so many in churches and I hear so many about churches that people come to churches to play the role of the critic instead of coming to be part of a loving community. That people come and they're stuck on their preferences and I like this song and not that one and I, I like this temperature and not that temperature and, 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 and I like this length of sermon and not that length of sermon and all the rest. And they have all these preferences that they, they might have and they're stuck on them and they're playing the, the role of evaluator and role of judge. And I just don't see it in the Bible. I don't see it in this book. Instead, what we see is something rather different, is that people linking arms together in love for one another. We've, we've created in, in American Christianity, and perhaps elsewhere in the West, this idea of the Lone Ranger Christian, which, by the way, doesn't exist in the Bible. The Christian that says, I'm a follower of Christ, but I don't have any time for God's people. I love God, but not his people. Well, maybe I love them, but I just don't have any time to be with them. Right? In fact, they might even say, listen, I could follow Christ more faithfully, more fully, more passionately if I'm off on my own. Well, maybe so. Maybe so. Maybe linking arms with other Christians will slow you down. But it just might speed them up. And by the way, I almost guarantee there's coming a day when you're going to need a little bit of tug, a little bit of support, a little bit of pulling along this path of Christian discipleship. This is what the church looks like. I appreciate what Mark Dever said, that the difference between heaven and hell is slight. The difference between heaven and hell is slight. Both have dinner and a long table with six-foot spoons. The difference being in heaven, we're glad to feed each other. In hell, they think of only feeding themselves. We see quite a different scene here in Thessalonica, for we read this last verse here in verse 8. For now we live if we are standing fast in the Lord. I have heard of your faith. Paul says, I could breathe again. When I thought your, your faith and love were failing, I, I, I was dying. I was dying, the apostle says. But now with this news, now I can live. It's like, it's like water on a dying fish. I'm alive now, now that I hear of what's going on in your life. You see, it's, his joy seems to be linked to their status. So if they're struggling, then Paul says, you know, I, I don't even feel like I'm living. I can't be happy. I wonder if you're like that with anyone. You're so invested in their life that their trouble causes you trouble. Now, I don't think you'd be like that with anyone, but we ought to be like that with some, and this is what the church is supposed to be, that Paul is not emotionally detached from these people, and he lets them know. Now, some of you might think, that sounds awfully codependent. Is Paul codependent? No, I don't think so. You're codependent, you're codependent if, not, if you don't want someone's Joy, you want their approval, right? You need them to need you. So the fr a sign of codependence is you're afraid of criticism because you can handle if they're unhappy. You just can't handle if they're unhappy with you, right? Paul, Paul doesn't care about that. All Paul cares about is they're happy with the Lord. Do they love Jesus? Are they following after Christ? He's after their faith. He's after their love. He's after their devotion to God. And he hears of it. And he says, what great joy that brings to my heart. For he loves them desperately. I said, well, what, what creates this bond of joy? What creates this bond of love? 
Well, as we end our time this morning, I know of only one thing that can do it. And it is a focus and delight in the love we have received from Christ. Do you know how God loves you, Christian? How do you know he loves you? Oh, I think so many people look at the quality of their life and the events of their day. And sometimes that shows very clearly God's love, and sometimes, even like today, it might not show it so clearly. May I encourage you not to look at the circumstances of your life to find witness to the love of God, but instead look to a hill called Calvary. Is it not the book of Romans that says in verse 8 of chapter 5, for God demonstrates his love for us in this. What is it? That while we were yet sinners, you know it, Christ died for us. You want to know God's love? You look to a cross, and thereupon it hangs the only perfect man who ever lived, the very Son of God, dying instead of us, bearing the wrath of God instead of us, so that we might experience the love of God forever and ever. And as we gaze upon our Lord and his work, will that not fill our hearts with love for others? For how can we receive the love of God and not extend it to one another? And so may we, as I hope we do every week, lift up Jesus, gaze upon his glory, ponder his work in great joy, that it might radically transform us as individuals and, yes, as a church, as a people delighting to love one another, that we might be known as his disciples. Our Father in heaven, May we increasingly become this people. May the gospel knit us together in a community of love. I say this knowing already, Father, that you have done a great work in us. I testify to that not in any sense of pride, but in great praise to you that I I believe and I have experienced and I even see it today that this is a church that loves one another well. And yet, Father, can we not grow in this? Can we not abound? And so will you, as we gaze upon Jesus, will you let there be a freedom within us that we might find it easy and delightful to love one another as we have been loved by you in Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.